So speaking of family, I had a, a really a great experience yesterday. We, we had family over for, uh, for dinner at our house, and, and uh, we were sitting around a campfire afterwards and just enjoying uh, one another's company. And our two youngest uh, grandchildren uh, were there. They're, uh, I don't know, about eight months old, something like that. And uh, one was sitting on one person's lap and the other was sitting on the other lap. And, uh, you know, we're all talking. And all of a sudden they began to decide they wanted to talk to each other. And uh, they, they were like squawking and motioning with their hands and their eyes. Such intensity in their faces just to each other, not to anybody else. And one would, you know, kind of, and the other one would respond even more loudly. And it was back and forth and it was very evident that they were trying to communicate to each other. Perhaps they were. I don't, I'm not really sure about that. But they were definitely trying. And uh, it just, this morning I was thinking about that, and I thought, oh, that is so typical of the process of communication, isn't it? Communication is, is a fascinating topic. It's absolutely fascinating. Because, because communication involves two components, transmission and reception. Transmission and reception. And what I mean by that is, is uh, think of it as in terms of a radio frequency. Uh, the, the radio station can be broadcasting at a certain frequency, and it's going out, and it's clear, and so forth. But, but your radio is not exactly tuned to the right frequency. <laughs> right? And you, you're not receiving what is being transmitted. How many husbands and wives can... Uh, you know, operate like, like an old AM radio station, right? <laughs> you know, you get about every third word that the other person is seeing. Because we're just not communicating. So telling or talking, no matter how eloquent one is, is not full communication. It requires reception for the close of the loop and for communication to take place. And uh, sometimes <laughs> what we think we've said and what the other person has heard can be miles apart. It can be miles apart. And I can give you an example of that. And it actually stretches back to my childhood when as a small boy growing up in a, in a Protestant church in New England. And going there to, uh, to Sunday school as a, as a young boy and, and uh, the stories, the Bible stories that were told in Sunday school as a child. And uh, listening to those stories, my conclusion growing up was that that's exactly what they were, stories. They were stories. They were stories like other childhood stories. And what I mean by that is that they weren't true. They were a story, they, they taught a moral or, or whatever, but, but that they didn't, they weren't true and they, and they weren't communicating anything of eternal significance. Now, there are probably many reasons for that, but, but I think one of the reasons for that was because these, these Bible stories were communicated out of context. They were they were packaged and presented as a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And, but there was nothing that tied them together and certainly didn't tie them to the Scriptures and to the, and to the great prophetic theme of the Scriptures and the redemption of mankind. One of the stories was uh, the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey for Palm Sunday. It's a story I still vividly remember from my childhood. In fact, I remember that as children growing up in the church on Palm Sunday, I knew it was Palm Sunday because they always gave the kids little palm fronds. And we would get to come into church, you know, waving palm fronds on Good Sunday. And, of course, as a boy, uh, waving palm fronds soon turned into sword fighting with palm fronds, right, until somebody caught us and... You know, told us to wave them like a little girl, not like a boy. <laughs> so that was Palm Sunday, just this, this disconnected story. And we didn't know, I didn't know certainly what it all meant. What was the purpose? How does it tie together? How is it connected to the events of the Passion Week? 
You know, why did Jesus come to Jerusalem at that time of year? Why then? And why, another question, why was it necessary for him to come into Jerusalem in such a public fashion? He had come and gone many times, often secretively. But why then, and why in that way? Now, Jesus' purpose in in his final trip to Jerusalem was not a mystery. It is not a mystery. Jesus himself, in his own words, he, he clearly states why he was going to Jerusalem that final time. He says, for example, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, speaking prophetically about six months before that final trip, it says there, from, this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It's not optional. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Furthermore, over in Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we're told that when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He must go to Jerusalem, and he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He says himself a little bit later in Luke chapter 13 and verse 33, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. So there was a divine necessity. He must go. There was a, there was a, a determined humanity that he, that he determined he was going to go. He must die there, he says. So there, there was clearly he knew where he was going. He knew what he was going to do there. It was, it was a clearly planned out event. Designed to to fulfill that which John the Baptist says when he speaks of him in John chapter 1 and verse 29, where he says he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And clearly the celebration of Passover is the celebration of the, the Lamb that was slaughtered and blood spread on the doorposts and lintel of the house. But there's more. There is more to this particular day. Jesus came publicly into the temple that way. Publicly. Into the very heart of the nation. Listen, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It has always been the capital of Israel since it was established there as the seat of the Davidic throne in 1000 B.C. It was their capital then, it is their capital now. So it is the capital city of the nation. And the, and the very center point of the capital city of the nation is the temple of God. So when he came into the city and to the temple that day, he was entering into the very heart of Judaism, the very center of the nation. Now, it's interesting because he knew that he had been rejected. He knew that the leaders and the people had already rejected him. He knew that. This is very prophecy, right? He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be be raised again on the third day. He knew he had been rejected. So why go into the very center of the nation? Why is it essential? Why was he determined? Why must he go? The answer is this. What had before been individualized, that is his rejection, he had been rejected individually by, by individuals within the nation. He had been rejected by certain scribes, by, by certain Sadducees, been, been uh, rejected by individual citizens of the nation, and, and it had been a, a series of ongoing rejections. But it had been individualized. What, now, uh, what, what, 
what once or was individual had to become corporate, had to become official. That's the point. He must be officially rejected. The individual has to become corporate. It has to become official. And that couldn't come until he had first made an official offer of the kingdom to the nation. He had to go to the capital. He had to go to the temple, the very center of it all. He had to present himself to them as their king, officially call them to a decision as a nation, which they would reject. They would turn from him. There would be an official rejection. They would refuse him as their king. Now again, I ask you the question, why? Why make an offer that you know will be refused? Why make an official offer that you know will be refused? Why? The answer is judicial. The answer is judicial. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that, is that in the economy of God, the way God orders his, his creation, the laws of jurisprudence that, that go back to him as the original righteous and just one, call for this. Call for this. He must go to the heart of the nation. And interestingly, he must go to them on Passover because on Passover, gathered there in Jerusalem will be the largest representation of the nation. This is a mandatory feast. And this is the feast that that turned out the people. They would come. Hundreds of thousands of people would come. And they would come from all over, both Israel and the empire. So there would, be the, there would be the greatest representation of the Jewish people to be gathered in any one place at any one time. And it's to them that he will make this official offer. Now this official offer, it, it has to be a publicly recognized offer. This is not going to be done in the shadows this is going to be done in the open. So that there's a, there's a, a turning point that can, be, that can be pointed to. It has to be a publicly recognized offer. It has to be an explicit offer. It has to be a decisive offer. It has to be an offer that, is, that involves an irrevocable rejection of God's kingship over his people. This isn't, this isn't keeping with the laws of jurisprudence. This is going to render the nation judicially guilty before God. Judicially guilty. Now this, this uh, notion, this, this idea is, is not like unique to this. There is biblical precedent for this. There is biblical illustration of this same reality. And and so what I want to do this morning, just to start you off, is to turn you to Isaiah chapter 6. We are going to get to Matthew. Don't worry. But it's to turn you to Isaiah 6 and and verse 8, where we will see biblical precedent, biblical illustration of this same reality of, 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 of a judicial decision being called for upon the nation. Now, the context of Isaiah chapter 6, of course, is Isaiah's call to the prophetic ministry. And uh, how many times this passage has been used in missionary commissioning services, uh, the first part at least, who, you know, who will go for me? Here am I, send me. And uh, rally the troops and out we go. But we, we forget the second part of this, beginning in verse 8. Where then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go up for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go, tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. 
Who wants to be a prophet of God? Go to the people, preach to the people, speak to the people, call the people to repentance, call them to return unto the kingship of their God, and by the way, they will not listen. They will not listen. In fact, ultimately, they will kill you. Turn to the right to Ezekiel. Chapter 3. This is not unique to Isaiah. Ezekiel chapter 3. Beginning in verse 4, this is the commissioning of Ezekiel to the prophetic ministry. And by the way, these commissionings of, the, of these two prophets occur at a time when God is, is summoning the nation to return to him, their king. But they are hard in unbelief. Then he said to me, verse 4, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you cannot understand, but I have sent you to them who should listen to you. Yet the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, since they are not willing to listen to me. Surely the whole house of Israel is stubborn and obstinate. Behold, I have made your face as hard as their faces and your forehead as hard as their foreheads. Like emery, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. Do not be afraid of them or be dismayed before them, for though they are a rebellious house. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, take into your heart all my words, which I will speak to you and listen closely. Go to the exiles, to the sons of your people, and speak to them and tell them whether they listen or not, thus says the Lord God. Go to them. Speak to them. Call them back. They will not listen. This is exactly what Jesus is doing. Go to your people. Proclaim yourself their king. Call upon them to repent and to receive you as their king. And they will achieve the kingdom. They will enter into the kingdom. And they will not listen. And they will not listen. Sounds pointless, doesn't it? It would be pointless. Except there is this necessary judicial aspect It renders them defenseless. It renders them guilty. It renders them guilty. Turn with me to Luke 13. Luke 13. Now think with me. Several months before the the Passover, the Passover is, is celebrated, right? Right, be, right before, or, or the or Palm Sunday, I should say, is celebrated just the week before the Passover. Passover is governed by the phase of the moon. It occurs sometime, you know, March to early April. So a few months before this, actually in the wintertime, we're told in John chapter 10, that, that, that Jesus attends the Feast of Dedication. In Jerusalem. There at the Feast of Dedication, there in December-ish, he proclaims, according to John chapter 10, verse 30, that, that he and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. It's not well received. They want to kill him. In fact, they are so determined to kill him, he flees from the city of Jerusalem. We're told in John 10 and verse 40, and I'm just reminding you of, what you presumably already know. He, he flees from Jerusalem, and, he, and with his disciples, he crosses over, we're told, the Jordan River to the east, and he, and he crosses over into what's known as the land of Perea, or, 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 or um, uh, Judah beyond the Jordan, the, the east side of the Jordan River, the land of Perea. And he does that in order to avoid the authorities. 
Now here in Luke 13, in verse 31, let me just kind of read it to you and then speak to you about it a minute. While he's there, just at that time, some Pharisees approach saying to him, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city which kills the prophets and, and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Behold. Your house is left you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, here's here's the deal. He's he's in the the land of, of Perea. He is outside of the jurisdiction of Jerusalem's religious authorities. They can't get at him here. He has crossed over, if you like more contemporary idea, he's crossed over a state line. And so there's no extradition situation. They can't get at him. And so the Pharisees come to him and they devise this this idea to trick him into coming back into uh, Judea where they can have him arrested. And so they come to him and they say that, that Herod wants to kill you. Herod Antipas rules both Galilee and Perea. Jesus sees through the ruse and says to them, tell that old fox, right? I'm not worried. I'm not worried. So Jesus kind of blows up their plan. He's not going to run, and he's not going to certainly run back into Judea. Why? It's too early. It's not time. It's not time. This expression, uh, you know, today, tomorrow, the next day, and so forth, there's just a figure of speech. He's not talking about three more days I'm going to be there. And then he laments, verse 34, He laments Jerusalem, and he he laments the hardness of heart among the leadership of Jerusalem that would be so opposed to him that it would create this kind of hatred. That That they would scheme together to try to scare him to come back where they can arrest him. And then he quotes, in verse 35, Psalm 118 and verse 26. You will not see me. I will not be back to Jerusalem until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a prophecy drawn from Psalm 118 and verse 26, a a messianic psalm. Well, guess what? That prophecy was fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. The crowds cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came back to them. He came back to them. Now, here's what I want to do with you this morning. A start at least. So I want to begin to look at Jesus' official offer of the kingdom to the nation. This important judicial event. And it has... The way it breaks down in my mind, at least three phases to it. Three phases of his official offer of the kingdom to the nation. And I want to look at this with you over this week and I think just next week. But, but I want to do that so that we will understand together the significance of this most momentous day. When we're done, no more flannel graph pictures of Jesus on a donkey. No more palm-waving little boys. I mean, it's okay in children's ministry, you know, whatever. But, but please, connect it. Connect it. So here they are. Here, I'll just give you the three phases. You can jot them down if you want. We're only going to look at one this morning. But the three phases are this. The first is called previous preparation. We're going to look at previous preparation. That's what we'll look at this morning. Next week, we'll look at prophetic proclamation, prophetic proclamation. And third, we will look at public presentation. Now, by now, I I neglected to tell you this, I guess, but I'm in Matthew 21. Well, I'm not, but I will be. 
So uh, Matthew chapter 21, that's where I need you to be. Okay, so we're back to Matthew's gospel. All that other stuff was just getting you ready. We're back in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 21, the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, three phases to it. Phase one, previous preparation, previous preparation. Now, last week, uh, we did an overview of the entire Passion Week. We looked at the, we looked at the sequence of events for the, for the Passion Week. I was exhausted when we finished. We talked really fast, and we looked at a ton of scriptures. But hopefully, it, it, it sort of set a context for you and, and, and provided some, some anchor points for you. But one of the things that I, that are, that I hope you really got out of that last week was, was the understanding that, that Jesus was very deliberate in what he did to set up this event. Very deliberate. He shrewdly took advantage of the sudden death of his friend Lazarus several weeks before this. You remember, he delayed going to see Lazarus. He, he intentionally delayed until the corpse would be decomposed before he went. He deliberately heightened the miracle, made it more spectacular, made it more undeniable, and did it on the very uh, boundaries of the nation, of the capital of the nation of Israel in Bethany. Now, beginning there, uh, I'll say that, with, with, the, with the, rise, or the raising of Lazarus, Jesus begins to lift the veil on what some theologians call the messianic secret. He begins to, to, to draw the curtain back, as it were, so people can see clearly. Previously, Jesus generally, not I don't want to say disguised his miracles, but, but, but he frequently told people, don't tell anybody. You know, he would, he would heal somebody, and, and then he would tell, you know, in case he heals a little girl, raises her from the dead, and tells the parents, don't tell anybody. Like, that's going to work, right? You know? I thought your daughter was dead. No, she's just, you know. She wasn't feeling well, I guess. I mean, he just does these things, and, and, he, and he says, be quiet. He takes people off to the side, and he, and he heals them. It, he, he avoids publicity. Generally, he's avoiding publicity. Listen, don't turn there, but just, just listen to this. This is in John 7. This is, this is early. This is, this is September, October of the year in which he dies, or just before the year he dies. It says his brothers, he's in Galilee, his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Or even his brothers were not believing in him. See, his brothers got it, right? If you want to be known popularly, widely, and, and the spectacular things you do, well, you need to do them in a way that, that people understand and see and know. Stop hiding. Stop concealing. Stop downplaying. Well, that was then. This is now. Now it's spectacular. Beginning with the, with the resurrection of Lazarus, the curtain is beginning to be drawn back. It's, it's thrown wide open. He is now intentionally heightening his popularity and the messianic fever that accompanies it. You remember John 6, right? After he feeds the crowd, they want to take him by force and make him king. And what does he do? He, he gets rid of them all. He gets rid of them. Now he, he's gathering the crowds to himself. And he does it primarily through these amazing displays of kingdom power. Now, he needs these crowds. He wants these crowds. There are many reasons for it, but not the least of which is that these crowds will provide the safety that he needs to go right into the heart of the enemy's camp, make the official offer of the kingdom, and yet not be stoned or, or dragged off by a mob or, or secretly you know, dragged away at night and, and hung or had his throat slit or something. But he's able to be there right in the heart of the nation, make the, the offer of the kingdom, knowing that it's going to be rejected and yet not die until the appointed time as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. 
So I tell you, he's, he's shrewd in this. He's careful. He's deliberate. He's planning. He said we are to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. This is an illustration. It's an illustration of that very thing. The gospel writers say this repeatedly. The authorities wanted to kill him, but they could not that week for fear of the crowds. The crowds were his security. The crowds were his security. So he raises Lazarus from the dead there in John 11. They're going to kill him. It's it's not the right time for him to die yet. And so in that case, he makes a strategic retreat. I told you this last time, John 11, verse 54. He and his 12 disciples go north about 12 miles to this little village of Ephraim. They hang out in Ephraim for a week or so, laying low. And then they travel north and they hook up with with the Galilean pilgrims that are coming down to celebrate the Passover. They cross over to the east of the Jordan River there in Galilee. They come down the east side of the Jordan River. They cross back over at Jericho. Along the way, he heals, he teaches, And when they cross back over, they enter the city of Jerusalem. He does this most amazing miracle where he heals these two blind men, right? And by this time, the crowd is crazy. They are inflamed with a messianic passion. And they make the trip up to Jerusalem. About 15 miles from Jericho, about 800 feet below sea level. They have to come up to the Mount of Olives. They have to crest the Mount of Olives, and they're over the top, and then down into the city of Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles. It's on, a, it's on this, uh, this uh, Roman military road. It's a pretty steep climb. They gain more than 3,000 feet of ascent as they go. He comes with the crowds. They, they, they're surging up and over. But, but he stops. He and his 12, they stop in the little town of Bethany, which is just over the top of the summit on the east side of, the, of, of this ridge that runs north and south, the Mount of Olives. The rest of the crowd, they are scurrying to get down into the city before the start of the Sabbath on Friday. It starts at sundown on Friday. And so they are quick to continue down into the city and find their lodging there. As I told you, the city is, is absolutely swollen with pilgrims. Swollen with pilgrims. They are, they are pouring in by the hundreds of thousands. There's no place. The city is not that big. They're camped out all over the hills that surround it. They are everywhere. And this is what's on their lips. John 11, verse 56. They... That is, the crowds were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? That was the topic of discussion. Will he come to the feast? The authorities have said, if you find him, anybody who finds him must report him so that we can arrest him and we can deal with him. So everybody's saying, do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll come? Do you think he'll come? And in come these pilgrims storming in and, and, and they hear about it. And they say to him, to the crowds that are there, you bet he's coming. Of course he's coming. How do you know? We were with him. We traveled with him. Well, where is he? He spent the night in Bethany. He's staying in Bethany. Well, what does that mean? Well, what does it mean is this. Saturday is the, is the celebration of the Sabbath. Then there's Saturday night, the feast after the, the breaking of the Sabbath. Sunday morning, he will be here. He will be here Sunday morning. And thus the crowds pour out Sunday morning to see him. I mean, you've got to remember this. This is like pre-texting, pre-internet, pre-telephone. You know, how else do you gather a crowd? And he gathers a massive crowd. A massive crowd. All strategically, deliberately done. Now, Matthew 21. It's now Sunday. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. It's Sunday morning. Jesus, accompanied by the twelve, 
and a crowd from the, from the small village of Bethany, the very place where Jesus had just a few weeks prior to this raised Lazarus from the dead, right? So a small crowd with him. They, they begin the 1.4-mile journey, the Sabbath day's trip from Bethany up and cresting over the Mount of Olives and down the Mount of Olives and in through the gates and into the city. Now, they are walking initially. And, and, and as they progress, very near to Bethany, there's a, a, evidently this other very small village called Bethphage. Bethphage. And, and along the way there, Jesus then instructs his disciples, two of his disciples were told here, right? Two disciples, verse 1, to go into this village and to get some transportation. Secure some transportation for me. Now, if you're curious like me, you, you wonder, well, who are these two disciples that he sends? And, and by the way, this event is reported in all four Gospels, just lets you know how important it is. All four Gospels, and none of them reveal who the two disciples are. But, but not one to be, uh, you know, frustrated that quickly. Uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 8. I won't turn you I'll just tell you this. Luke chapter 22 and verse 8. Jesus sends two disciples to prepare the upper room feast of the Passover. Remember that? There they are identified for us. And we're told they're Peter and John. So, can't be sure. But I'm kind of liking Peter and John. Peter and John go into Bethphage, house of figs, and, and get transportation. Get transportation. Your job is to bring a donkey. Right? Bring a donkey, verse 2. Immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. So Matthew says you bring a donkey and it's colt. Mark and Luke tell us that uh, they go into the village and, uh, and they find a colt. In fact, Mark and Luke both record that, that all they are told to get is a colt. One that's never been ridden. And to bring it back with them. They are to find, according to Mark and Luke, they find the colt tied up in the street. And uh, they are to untie it and to bring it. And as they bring it, uh, if they are challenged, they are to say the Lord has need of it. And in fact, it's reported they are challenged. They untie it. They're challenged by the owner and, and a few others that are standing there. And they respond in the, in the way that they've been told the Lord has need of it. And the owner and the others say, okay, take it. Matthew says it's a, it's a donkey and it's colt. Mark and Luke say it's just the colt. So Matthew says two animals. Mark and Luke say, you know, just speak of one animal. So what is it? Is it two? Is it one? It is two. Okay? It is two. It is two animals. Jesus didn't ride two animals. He rode one animal. He rode the colt. He rode the colt. Okay? But the mother and the colt were brought. And we're told here, to, uh, he's, he's told to bring them. And a little bit later on here, it says that uh, verse 7 of, of chapter 21 here in Matthew, they brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their coats on them. That is, they put their cloaks on both the, the donkey and the, uh, the colt. And then it says he sat on, and the NASB gives you, the, I think, the right translation. They sat, he sat on the coats. He didn't sit on them. The them is the coats. It's not like he, you know, sat really wide-legged on one of each or halfway through he stopped and got off one and got on the other, okay? He rode the colt the entire time, the entire time. Matthew gives you this detail, and uh, it's a helpful detail, I think, and it just sort of fleshes this out. This colt, we're, we're carefully told, has never been ridden before. That means it is skittish. It is skittish. He's going to, there's going to be a massive crowd. He's already organized this massive crowd to come. And he's going to ride into the city on an animal that has never had a human rider on its back before in the midst of a crowd that's going to be yelling at them. That will scare and spook the colt. And so the mother is brought in order to steady the animal. And so they lead the mother and the colt behind. And Jesus is, you know, is astride the colt. And into the city they come. It is certainly possible, and many believe, that Jesus sovereignly and omnisciently just 
divined that there was a colt and a, and a mother donkey tied up in the street in Bethphage and that he could send his disciples and when they're challenged for taking somebody else's property that he would just say the Lord has need of it and, and that would you know, be sufficient and, and he would bring the animals. And that's very possible. I mean, he spoke the universe into creation. It's certainly very possible. I think a better answer, though, is that he had set this up ahead of time. A better answer, from my perspective, is that he had set it up ahead of time. Saturday night, he is there for the feast. He has plenty of time to, to go the very short distance to Bethphage, set it up with some supporters of his, that as he's coming into the city, he's going to send a couple of disciples. They're going to come and get this colt, okay? How will you know that it's the right disciples coming to get it? How, how will I know? This is my colt, right? I'm the owner here. How will I know it's not just some guy ripping me off? Well, it's simple. You, you give the sign and countersign. You say, you know, what are you doing? And they respond with the countersign, the Lord has need of it. And they go, okay, take it. Take it. Now listen. Whether it was done sovereignly, omnisciently, by, by the divine Lord, or whether it was done through human shrewdness and engineering, the point remains the same. Jesus didn't need a donkey to like get him into the city. You're talking about someone who walked his entire ministry. Hundreds of miles. The, the, the Sabbath day walk from, from Bethany into Jerusalem is not so far, so difficult. Oh, my feet are killing me. I, I need a ride. Somebody get me a donkey. I'm tired. Not, not at all. Not at all. There's a purpose, a purpose in this, a plan in this. Now, next week, you'll have to come back and we'll explain and explore the purpose in the animal. Okay? But for now, just go home with this. It wasn't because he needed a lift. Okay? Listen, the nation, I've said this, the nation was white hot with messianic expectations. He tells a parable, Luke records it, Luke 19 and verse 11, and it's told, we're told there specifically, he tells that parable because they thought the kingdom was going to come immediately. This place is, this is white hot with messianic expectation. And now Jesus is, is coming here and, and he's going to deliberately disclose himself to the nation as king. This lifting of the veil. Notice, by the way, um, notice in verse 3 here. It says, if, anything, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel where it's recorded that Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. Jesus' favorite self-disclosure is the name that he used most often to refer to himself was the Son of Man. The Son of Man is, is, a, is a concealed statement. That is that it hides the truth from those that are unbelieving and it reveals the truth to those that are believing. It is the Son of Man is a reference back to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. But here he, he pulls the curtain aside. He doesn't call himself the Son of Man. He reveals himself to who he really is. The Lord has need of it. Okay, The curtain is opening. The curtain is opening. Why? Because it's time for the nation to decide. It is time to decide. Today is the day. Here, on this Temple Mount, in the capital of the nation, that which the Scripture refers to as the, as the navel of the world, as the pupil of God's eye, the Messianic King will come. And he will reveal himself in an unambiguous way. He will speak very, very clearly to them. Very clearly. By the time this day is over, this Palm Sunday is over, by the time it's over, the leaders of the nation will have made their official decision. They'll have made their official decision. The people, it'll take a little bit longer, right? The people are still caught up in this, in this messianic fervor. 
So Jesus is going to confront them with their decision, and he'll do it on Monday and Tuesday. And, and he'll, he will design a test, actually, a test to, for them to, to determine what will they do. What will they do? And Monday, Tuesday is that, is that test. Now, this is not unusual. This is not some new way of doing business. And Jesus frequently has done this before. That is, devise a test, a litmus test, to determine whether the, whether the acclaim of the crowds is real or not. For example, Matthew chapter 5 6 and 7 records what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. There, Jesus reveals the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Remember that? He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. The scribes and the Pharisees were the best example of, of Judaistic righteousness available. And he sets them out there and he says, you've heard them say, I'm telling you, you've heard them say, but I say to you. And he says to them, listen, if you think you, you know, and you can't even live up to this, you got to go way over this or you will never enter the kingdom of God. Anybody who wants in on that basis is discouraged and thinned out. Later in John chapter six, after he, he, he feeds the 5,000, right? They want to. They want to come and they want to make him king. Then he preaches to them what's called the bread of life discourse. You remember that one? That's what he says in John chapter 6 and verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Let you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that is not a reference to communion. The crowd responds to him and says... That is a hard statement. Who can understand? And the idea is not hard intellectually. The idea is hard morally. The end of chapter 6, it says that not many were walking with him after that. While in Perea, just prior to crossing over to Jericho, he says... To, to those that are the crowd that are gathered around in the area, he says, uh, he speaks of the cost of discipleship, and he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, his own life, he cannot be my disciple. It's not a very great way to, you know, get people to come in. Can you imagine inviting your parents to church for the first time, and that's the passage of Scripture? Kind of a hard one. So Jesus had done this before. He had done it before. He, he had devised a test to reveal the true nature of the acclaim. And he's going to devise one more here. It'll be, it'll be played out for us on Monday and Tuesday. And, and when it's done, when it's done, the nation will say, all right, Pilate will present him, and the nation will say, we have no king but... Caesar. And they will bring down on themselves the judicial wrath of God. A wrath that continues upon a people in unbelief even to this day. And will be lifted only when the nation again will say, and this time with true hearts of faith, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Beloved, Psalm 118 and verse 24 says, This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. This is the day the psalmist is referring to. That's the day when the nation is to rejoice and to be glad. And they are only superficially attached. Superficially. We'll come back at it next week. We'll see it unfold. Let's pray. Father, there's a mystery here. The mystery of your dealings with the nation of Israel.
the mystery of Christ, the mystery of an offer of the kingdom which was real and valid and, and yet an offer that had already been refused and, and would be refused. It's hard for us to work through these things. We're bumping up against your, your divine will and, and you don't reveal all of it. Yet our Father, the Scripture is clear. That Jesus came. He came as the King. He came as the Messiah. There was that which he had once concealed. He now openly revealed. And that which was individualized now became official and corporate. And that was their rejection of their King. And Father, we, most of us here this morning as Gentiles... We have become the beneficiaries of that reality. The Apostle Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 11, where he says that the natural branch was broken off, that that we could be grafted in the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And yet he warns us, Paul does, not to be arrogant against those natural branches because they will be grafted in again. And so, Father, we live between the ages. We live at a time when your ancient people, Israel, are are locked in hard unbelief. Oh, there's a remnant here and there of those that you save because your promises are always available to those who will turn in faith, and yet the nation is judicially blinded. But there is a day coming. There is a day when the time of the Gentiles will end. There is a day when the role and roster of the church universal will be filled up. There is a day when Christ will return and and will take his church to be with himself as his bride. There is a day when your ancient people, broken by by the ravages of the Antichrist's persecution, will call out to be saved. There is a day, the prophet Zechariah says, when they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. Oh, hasten the day, our Father. Hasten the day of the return of Christ. Bring down the curtain on this wicked age. Establish his kingdom. Oh, we long for these things. And Father, for those here today who do not know Christ, there is that sense of urgency for them. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to the Savior. There is no promise of tomorrow. Oh God, may you move in their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come back next week, beloved, and we will take up the other purposes of this great day. God bless.